Welcome to the Common Round. Medical education for medical students by medical students. I'm Hamid. And I'm Andy. And joining us today is our executive producer, Gautam. Last time we talked about diseases that make you clot easier and today we'll go over the opposite side of the spectrum and talk about bleeding disorders. So we've already talked about hemostasis, the process of actually forming clots. We've talked about the primary part, mm-hmm. secondary parts, so primary involving platelets coming together, act, uh, so having the adhesions, aggregations, and then the clotting cascade where secondary hemostasis where the actual factors the intrinsic and extrinsic pathways come together to stabilize those clots yeah and if any of that is unclear please go back to the, that episode and have a listen to mm. it to form uh, to to get a good picture of it and then come back and listen to yeah, it. yeah i think without not understanding that the mm. basic physiology of it both the thrombophilia lecture which was our previous episode and this hemophilia lecture is not going to make too much sense so i think i really encourage you guys to go back and have a listen let's jump into this okay so we can start talking about how vascular disorders are arising right you could it could be because you've got too little platelets so so too few of them so that's thrombocytopenia mm-hmm. you can have platelets that don't work yep. or you can have too few clotting factors mm-hmm. or that the clotting factors don't work and yeah that the, the diseases that we're going to go through will be a combination of all yeah exactly i'm really one for like learning this sort of stuff systematically and forming a good mental structure so let's use the same approach that we did for the thrombophilia so you can have hereditary forms of throm- uh, hemophilia yep and you can have acquired forms hereditary forms obviously there's a genetic component to it yep. and acquired forms are something that happens along the way as you're so, traveling through life that causes that Mm. So do you want to mention some examples of the hereditary forms of it? Yeah. So the main ones that we can talk about will be hemophilia. That includes the A type and the B type. Mm-hmm. We have the von Willebrand's factors diseases. Uh, that's about it. So, so we'll talk about, we'll talk about those three. And the other three you know, really important ones. We'll, and then the other ones will go into the acquired ones. Yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. Well, how about we kick off by talking about hemophilia A. Yeah. Um, so what's that all about? So hemophilia A is a decrease in factor eight production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, one way you can think about it is hemophilia A sounds like eight. So hemophilia A. Eight. Okay. Eight. <laughs> That's right. That's, that, that way you won't forget. Hemophilia um, eight. And how do you, is it sort of, is it autosomal recessive? Is it autosomal dominant? Is it X-linked? X-linked recessive. Okay. Yeah. And so it's a very common clotting factor deficiency. One of the most common clotting factor deficiencies. Uh, that affects one in five five thousand males. Yeah, it affects males because obviously in males you have an XY chromosome. So oh. if you only have if you inherit one defective form of X, that's okay. it. You're stuck with it. Whereas <laughs> if you're a girl, you might you have an X and an X. So if you even have a defunct X, your other X chromosome will compensate. Yeah. That's why it can affect uh, males more than females. Yeah. What are some of the like? Do you is it severe? In, in every patient or are there criteria for severity? So we're talking about a factor eight deficiency, right? So I guess the clinical presentation depends on the level of factor eight that's still present. Yeah. Um, if we think back, uh, factor eight is quite important. It's in part of the intrinsic pathway mm. and it's quite mm. important in uh, forming the clot. So if- An activation of 10, which oh, yes, then exactly. goes ahead and- Yes, exactly. So if you have a deficiency in factor eight, then that means that you're clotting cascade is not going to work as well and so you're going to have a more likelihood of bleeding mm-hmm. um so depending on the levels you have uh, the deficiency in factor eight then that's the the, the severity of 
the disease is going to change. Um, for to just just to give you guys an example, if you have more than let's say five percent of normal factor eight levels, then you're part of a you have a mild form of mm-hmm. hemophilia yeah. A. Whereas if you have less than one percent, then that's when the really severe cases start kicking in. And one to five percent is mainly moderate sort of symptoms. So it's you know occasional spontaneous joint bleeds. This is joint bleeds is really important. We'll talk about that joint in a second. Um, and you can have post-traumatic sort of bleeding when you've had the surgery and you have a bleed. If you have less than 1% of those factors, you're going to have frequent spontaneous bleeds. And that's a really severe form. Uh, That starts early in life and it can potentially lead to joint deformities. So that brings us into some of the clinical features. So we mentioned joint and soft tissue bleeds. Now what happens is that if if the bleeding occurs in the joints, you're going to have an inflammatory response. You might also uh, compromise circulation to the joints. And so you're going to have this inflamed joint that over time through, you know, long-term bleeding can become deformed. So these guys look like, if you have a picture of someone with hemophilia with a joint deformity, they're literally, if you look at their kneecaps, it looks like two or three times the size of a normal person. It looks massive. It looks like it's full of fluid and quite edematous. Um, are there any other sort of bleeds that... You yeah, might? so with a lot of these bleeding problems, you're going to have easy easy bruising. Mm, yeah. And also is muscle hematomas and uh, hemarthroses. Mm. Is that just the... Bleeding into the into the joints and, yep. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think yeah. it needs to be mentioned that the bleeding is much deeper in the tissue as opposed to. And this keep that in the back of your mind because this is important when we talk about a different disorder that we're going to talk about soon. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else? Um, so you can have neuropathy where ischemic necrosis can occur, especially in the brain, right? Mm, if there's trapped blood. Mm. Yeah, and then you can have also intracranial hemorrhages in the most severe of cases. Mm. Yeah, and also of course you can forget the mucosal bleedings as well. So I guess nosebleeds as well as you know, bleeding in the guts and other things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly. let's say if you found out that someone has hemophilia A, what kind of treatments would you expect them to be? Well, it really depends on the severity of the symptoms. If they have mild um, hemophilia, and to be honest, I had no idea about this treatment, even though um, I had come across desmopressin a few times. So desmopressin is another term for ADH. So or vasopressin, which is um, the um, antidiuretic hormone, essentially. Now, in, a, in the mild case of hemophilia, desmopressin is important because it's used to promote the re- release of von Willebrand factor. And von Willebrand factor stabilizes factor 8, and so mm-hmm. it increases its survival. So you're not you know, spontaneously losing a lot of factor 8. And so that factor 8 can then be used in the clotting cascade that's in the mild form what about someone who let's say doesn't have the mild form or um, requires more intensive interventions what do you do then so instead of actually trying to stimulate the body's production of 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 these factor eights we actually just give them the factor Mm. themselves so we're looking at transfusions yeah um so do you have a particular goal that you you try to achieve as well in, in an infusion Okay, so you want to try and maintain the levels of the uh, factor 8 to be at least above 1%. Yeah. Because the definition of the severe case was less than 1%, mm. where you get the spontaneous bleeding. And yeah, so the aim of it is is to decrease the amount of bleeding that's done, also minimize the amount of joint damage, and hopefully the patient will be able to live a normal daily life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Can you just mention a yeah. little bit more about the transfusion as well? Mm. Do we transfuse these patients with whole blood plasma or is it better to give them cryoprecipitate? Well, the cryoprecipitate, I think, is, sounds like a better idea because 
essentially, if you sometimes they will need need such a large amount of factor eight that just pumping them full of just the whole blood is just going to overlook. Mm. Well, while it's going to give them the right amount of factor eight, it's also going to give them too much of, let's say, either the red blood cells or or other di- different types of actual fluids. So sometimes giving the concentrated cryoprecipitate form would be more appropriate from from my understanding yeah yeah and i think now you can get recombinant um, or synthetically produced factor eights as well and that can come in a pegylated form which Mm. is a longer acting so instead of giving these patients three times a week you can give it over a longer period of time which saves them Mm. from this unnecessary injections and infusions Mm. so improves their quality of life that's pretty much it for it's not very complicated you know you know you just Mm. don't have this factor eight and Mm. you can have a spectrum of symptom severity what about hemophilia b what's that all about hemophilia b is very 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 similar to hemophilia a Mm. except this time it's not involving factor eight but actually uh, a deficiency in factor nine yeah yeah so it's also x-linked recessive and it has a very similar presentation and features of factor uh, of hemophilia a it's a bleeding disorder after all you won't be surprised as well if you know that it's a deficiency in nine then 8 and 9 are so close together on the clotting cascade that if you have a deficiency in either, it's going to produce very similar mm. symptoms. The reason we don't place much more emphasis on it, and the reason um, hemophilia A is more prominent, is the fact that B is not as common. It's actually five times less common, so mm. you tend to see A more often than B. Okay. So in terms of some of the investigations that you might come to see, what do you think you might see for hemophilia A, given the fact that this is a condition that's affecting the intrinsic pathway? Do you think APTT would be elevated or would be decreased? If you guys are not sure what we're talking about in terms mm-hmm. of APTT, go and listen to our thrombophilia lecture. We cover that quite well. at the very Near the very end. Near of the, the end of the yeah. talk. Mm-hmm. But essentially PT or pro-thrombo, um, prothrombin time relates to the extrinsic pathway and APTT, mm-hmm. table tennis. If you're not sure what I mean by table tennis, go and listen to our previous podcast refers to the intrinsic pathway if we're talking about hemophilia a or either a or b both of them affect intrinsic pathway um, factors so i would expect a problem with the pt p sorry ptt aptt times that's right yeah whereas with the um the pt time the it's virtually unaffected so I, i wouldn't say that should that should be raised at all so taking that logic a little bit further if pt is not affected then the inr would be normal as well oh yes exactly yeah, so that's an important point Good to point. keep in mind yeah um there is also other investigations that you need to run aside from aptt one is to look for specific assays to rule out one willebrand factor i can never pronounce it deficiency yeah because one willebrand factor is actually intimately linked with factor eight yes and so if there's a deficiency one willebrand factor it can affect the stability of factor eight oh. which brings us so which might confuse the the patient would also present with very similar symptoms kind of yeah hey, okay. so now that we're on the topic of one millibrand factor let's talk can about you have genetic abnormalities affecting that as well yes we yes you certainly can so it can also be an inherit inherited component of um, the bleeding disorders mm-hmm. before we go into it just to recap on what yeah. von willebrand factor is is that it's stored in the endothelium as well as in platelets and in the endothelium, it's stored in these things called a Weibull Pilati bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what the two main functions of the von Willebrand factor is, is that one, it helps stimulate the platelet, ag- oh, sorry, platelet adhesion. And so this- that's part of the primary hemostasis. Yes. And the second one is to stabilize factor eight 
in secondary hemostasis and ensure its survival. So mm. if you have a decrease in von Willebrand's factor, not only are you going to have an upset in the primary hemostasis pathway, but in the secondary hemostasis, in the, especially the intrinsic pathway, you're going to have some problems as well. Exactly. That's a really good way of putting it. So how is it classified? Well, it's classified according to type 1, 2, and 3, yeah. whereas type 1 has a mild quantitative uh, defect, so there's a decrease in amount of von Willebrand's factors, whereas type 2, there's a qualitative defect, so the von Willebrand factors aren't do doing the right job, is that correct? Essentially, they're type 2. You have this, like you mentioned, qualitative defect, and the, the von Willebrand activity is disproportionately lower than the quantity, so you might have lots of von Willebrand factor, yeah. But unfortunately, for some reason, it's not its activity is not working properly. So there must be some sort of mutation there, mm. where um, the factor is not able to carry out its you know, let's say binding functions to factor eight. So mm. it's not a stable. Yep. And then what's the last type? The third factor? type is where there's a total quantitative defect. So the, the person does absolutely has no von Willebrand factors. But this is kind of rare. Um, one thing I can I forgot to mention beforehand was that. Another gene that's very important in the um, the body is the Adams TS13, mm, and that's yes, very important yes. to to the production of von Willebrand's factor. If you don't have that, then um, then you're going to have problems with the actual synthesis of von yeah, Willebrand's factor. Yeah, because I, I guess von Willebrand factor is produced in these large multimers, so these massive molecules, and Adams um, uh, Adam TS13. TS13 is actually involved in breaking down and releasing the von Willebrand factor. Mm. This is kind of alluding to another topic that we plan to talk about and that's platelet disorders and and adam ts13 is really important for platelet disorders but that's a whole topic on its own yep. so keep that in the back of your mind when we talk about that in our next topic mm -hmm. so what are some of the features of i'm assuming it's very similar to the other exactly yeah so you have like mucosal bleeding such as um, nosebleeds bruisings gut bleeds uh menorrhagia so mm. like heavy menstrual bleeds yeah. and also well actually in this case unfortunately the joint bleeds are uncommon so yeah. actually probably it's not unfortunate it's probably unfortunate because mm, they don't get the deformities so that's how it's different between a and b yeah exactly so in terms of diagnosis as we mentioned before you look at von Willebrand factor assays to see whether there's any so i'd expect a low, lower level compared yeah. to whereas in hemophilia a and b i'd expect i'd expect the von Willebrand factor to be quite normal yeah hopefully unless they've got a mixed picture oh dear you'd also expect a reduction in von Willebrand. sorry in factor eight which is a little bit confusing but because you don't have von Willebrand factors, then your factor eight it would be reduced because it's not as stable. Mm -hmm. But the way to distinguish that between those two is the fact that platelet aggregation will also be affected in von Willebrand factor disease because this affects platelet aggregation as well. Whereas in hemophilia, platelet aggregation is normal. Mm -hmm. So that's an important way of distinguish it. So let's talk about treatment. So we mentioned already about desmopressin. Does desmopressin have a role in this disease as exactly. well? Exactly. Well, desmopressin, as you mentioned before, helps helps the body release von Willebrand factors. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, if let's say if you've got a deficiency in it, giving the person desmopressin might help boost up the amount of von Willebrand factor yep. that's available. What else? What other kind of treatments are You can there? give high purity um, factor eight concentrates containing von Willebrand factors. Because well, remember, von Willebrand factor is bound to factor eight. So that's another way of supplementing the Wombula-Brand factor in the body. But you need to really monitor the levels to make sure that you don't overdo it and at the same time you're not underdoing it. Because if you overdo it, you're increasing the risk of thrombus. Yep. If you're underdoing it, the patient's going to bleed. I think you can also give conjugated estrogen. I'm not sure what the role of that is in terms of in, in, in like a male population. 
because it is sex-linked after all. But in that conjugated estrogen increases one bilirubin factor levels as well. So that's pretty much all the inherited diseases. So we talked about hemophilia A, which is factor eight, hemophilia B, which is factor nine, one bilirubin factor dis- d- disorder. Let's talk about acquired bleeding. Okay. So acquired bleeding. So one of the three that we're going to talk about is thrombocytopenia. Yeah. Um, that essentially means that you have low levels of platelets. Mm-hmm. So it's defined kind of as as less than 150 by 10 to the power of 9 perfect um, per liter of platelets per liter yeah yep. it's pretty simple you can either have too much destruction or too much consumption we'll talk about both of them when we talk about disorders of the platelet which relates to our Adams 13 mm. point as well so stay tuned for a future Adam's episode TS13 TS13 that's yes. right what about conditions where you can have decreased coagulation factors aside from yep. so these are the acquired type In addition to the platelets, you can have problems in secondary hemostasis with the coagulation factors. Um, One of them, these are really intimately linked. So drugs such as warfarin, liver disease, and vitamin K deficiency are pretty much three different ways of targeting the same problem, Mm. isn't it? Warfarin uh, inhibits the POCTase reductase, which essentially stops the activation of vitamin K to to, to help produce 2, 7, 9, 10 protein C and S. Yep. Yep. Whereas yep. in liver diseases, you don't have the ability to produce liv- uh, clotting factors such as two, seven, nine, ten CNS. Or if you have a vitamin K deficiency, you don't have the activation of vitamin K to help produce two, seven, nine, ten CNS. Yeah. Uh, for you guys listening in Australia, you may have noticed the pattern: two, seven, nine, and ten are the four really popular TV stations in in Australia. So that's an easy way of remembering it. For you guys overseas, I'm sorry. uh, We don't have an easy one for you to remember. You just have to memorize it. You just know that in Australia, 27910 are very popular TV channels. Yes, exactly. Um, All right. And so for platelet disorders that are acquired, you know, things like aspirin where you inhibit thromboxane activity. COX-2 produce the thromboxane A2. Exactly. COX-1, I think. Um, Yeah, COX-1 produces that. So cyclooxygenase 1. You can have NSAIDs, which also have a similar effect, but they're they're reversible types of clopidogrel, which is an ADP antagonist, does the same thing as well. There's lots of different targets that drugs that you can give to disrupt either the primary homeostasis pathways or the secondary ones that that you mentioned. Now, this is the big one that is always mentioned, but I don't, for some reason, no one ever bothers to clarify. So disseminated intravascular coagulation or, or DIC. I, I prefer DIC, but <laughs> all right. All right. What, whatever makes it easy for you to remember. Yeah. Let's let's talk. Let's finish off the podcast or, or this episode by talking through DIC. What is DIC about? <laughs> okay. Essentially, it's kind of like a paradox with this one with DIC is that the condition causes. It, in, you can tell from the name that there is this huge amount of coagulation or clotting that's happening mm. in the body. Disseminated, it's everywhere. Yeah. And so the problem is like, why are we talking about this huge amount of clotting in the bleeding disorder mm. lecture? And then the thing is that sometimes when you have a trigger, which we'll go through later on, that you've got a trigger that in the body triggers basically a huge amount of coagulation that you use up all your clotting mm-hmm. factors. And then so once all that clotting has occurred, or whilst it's occurring, you're actually deficient in clotting factors and then that actually leads to lots of bleeding exactly uncontrollably and also when you produce lots of clots 
as a consequence of homeostatic stability, then fibrinolysis takes place. So you start oh. dissolving the clots as well. Jeez. So not only uh, sorry, dissolving the, um, the fibrins that are produced, so that further increases your risk of bleeding. So essentially what happens is that you have this event that causes massive clot formation. So an example of that being in the cases of where you have um, snake bites or commonly associated when you have sepsis or burn in some uh, leukemia types this can happen as well and some neoplasms as well in pregnancy the uh, amniotic fluid emboli can also yeah as well exactly because i think in the amniotic fluid there is this sort of trigger that i i forget what exactly it was but that once that gets into the blood that acts as a trigger triggers it yeah and so that triggers this massive clotting cascade and then you use up your clotting factors your platelets because Mm -hmm. they're all intimately linked yeah um you know fibrinolysis also kicks in and together this places you at a state where you're deficient in lots of clotting factors. You've used up quite a lot of platelets and you have fibrinolysis going on. And so that places you at an increased risk of bleeding. So what are the treatment options in this? I mean, this is a life-threatening situation. You need to ur- act urgently on this. So how do you treat it? So we st- we try and manage it according to whatever triggered it first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so manage the underlying cause and then you just replenish as much coagulation factors as you can yeah and so if it's a snake bite give them give anti-venom and etc if it's sepsis uh, treat the underlying cause or the organism responsible so yeah so that's disseminated intravascular coagulation also known as dic or dic whichever one you guys want to <laughs> learn it as that's pretty much hemophilia so we're talking about hemophilia a hemophilia b Bombillivant factor disorder and acquired types, which are either due to um, decreased clotting factor production because of drugs, excessive consumption because of, let's say, disseminated uh, intravascular coag- uh, coagulation or coagulopathies, and thrombocytopenia. For thrombocytopenia, that's going to be talk on its own, so we'll mention that in a future podcast. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to our Common Rounds podcast. You can find all of our episodes, notes, elective experiences, and much more content on our website. So come visit us at thecommonrounds.wordpress.com. And see you next time.